Shea butter and popcorn. <laughs> okay, let's start the show. Preparati per la stagione 4. Preparate para la temporada 4. Sit back, relax, and listen. Friday's gonna have you glistening. Get ready for a real good vibe. Shea butter and popcorn. Now live. Welcome to Shea butter and popcorn. With Taj and Chels, season four, episode five. Shea Butter and Popcorn is the podcast where your neighborly film fanatics review our favorite films and shows. My name is Chelsea, a.k.a. Chels, singer, actor, blogger, podcaster, and all-around movie lover. My name is Tajiana, also known as Taj, actor, filmmaker, and lover of all Black things, Black stories, Black narratives, Black everything. Welcome or welcome back, y'all. Welcome, everybody. This is going to be so fun this week. This is our special. So excited. Time (laughs) may change me or whatever David Bowie was saying. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for those of y'all who know the song. Um, So long story short, we're going to be discussing the biggest character arcs. And um, I mean, who doesn't love a good character arc? It brings me joy when I end up being surprised by the finding of the proposed antagonist and having... Uh, redeemable qualities and then actually not being as bad as I first thought. So the clues this week highlight the Amalfi Coast of Italy, syringes, and swimming pools. Hmm. Very interesting. So let's dive in. First slash. Slash. Dive in. Oh, wow. <laughs> it. We just need to have a singing special where Chelsea just sings to y'all. And yeah, then, that would be fun. They <laughs> just sing every day, just because. Why not? <laughs> so first up is The Talented Mr. Ripley, 1999, directed by Anthony Minghella, Minghella, available on Hulu. And this was nominated for five Academy Awards, even though it went home empty-handed. But it got an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes, so, you know. B average. Um, this is the one film where you are waiting for every other character to see how evil the protagonist is. This film is really unique because the antagonist is also the protagonist. This is about the talented Mr. Ripley and Tom Ripley is so inherently evil. So his main arc leaves you wondering, why is he like this? Why was his life as a nobody and a wannabe so unbearable that he becomes a murderer? All of these questions are brought up. So while working at a fancy party as a pianist, Tom Ripley, played by Matt Damon, is approached by shipping magnate Herbert Greenleaf, who believes that Ripley attended Princeton with his son, Dickie Jude Law, because Ripley is wearing a borrowed Princeton jacket. There you go right there. He's never even gone to the school. Greenleaf gives him a tour of his shipyard and recruits Ripley to travel to Italy to persuade Dickie to return home after offering him a $1,000 bonus, all expenses paid, etc. So after a first-class ocean liner voyage, Ripley, he... Um, let me see. After a first-class ocean liner voyage, Ripley pretends to be Dickie in the Italian ship terminal and strikes up a friendship with an American socialite, Meredith Loeb, played by Kate Blanchett. 
And in the fictional seaside village of Mangibello, Ripley befriends Dickie and his girlfriend, Marge Sherwood, played by Gwyneth Paltrow. And he becomes obsessed with Dickie himself. So eventually Dickie tires of him and and starts spending time with his uh, socialite friend, Freddie Miles, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, who treats Ripley with contempt. So the night they return from Rome, Dickie catches Ripley dressed in his clothes and dancing in front of a mirror. And he's completely disturbed because um, Ripley, Tom Ripley is a closet homosexual. And when Dickie impregnates a local woman because he's a philanderer, he rejects her and she drowns herself. So this story is all over the place. But only time Ripley knows what happens and he promises to keep it a secret. But Dickie's father cuts off Ripley's travel funds and then Dickie cancels a trip to Venice and tells Ripley they should just part ways because he's bored of them and bored of him and everything like that and going to take him on a final trip to San Remo. So they argue on a boat and <laughs> Dickie's like, I'm sick of you. I'm going to marry Marge. And then Ripley insinuates that Dickie is rejecting him because he's afraid of the feelings they have developed for each other, which is delusions of grandeur on Ripley's part. And so Ripley ends up killing him with an oar. Such a violent scene, but he beats him to death on this boat, right? And so then he takes his belongings and then takes his identity. So the one thing, though, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character realizes that Ripley is not a good dude and his socialite friend, you know, he plays Freddie. And so the Ripley has to, has to in fact kill Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, Freddie Miles as well. He kills him with a bust. Um, and his ruse is threatened because Marge arrives later in Rome and Tom runs into her at the opera when um, she's there with friends and things like that. And she knows that, he probably killed Dickie. Well, she suspects it anyway. And she also doesn't know where Freddie is, who was also killed. So it's very dark. Um, it kind of takes you on this journey because you don't think that this movie is going to turn into this, but it does. After Ripley's killing all these people, um, he decides to let Kate Blanchett's character live because she keeps running into him and things like that. Um, <clears throat> and the persona and stuff, he doesn't want to, you know ruin that since she has family with her on the ship at the very end of the movie but he does in fact kill peter who of course knows the demons that he struggles with and things like that and him and peter kind of forge this romantic relationship so that is the talented mr ripley whose character arcs so much and so quickly but then it continues to rise i think the first Go of it is when he kills uh, Jude Law's character, of course. And then when he kills Freddie, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. And then by then he's completely hatched on to this lie that has built itself up so bad. And uh, then he lastly kills Peter. And still Gwyneth Paltrow's character, she goes off with the dad, but she's sad and knowing the truth, but nobody's believing her. They're just like, oh, she's dealing with hysteria and things like that to kind of put her off because she's a woman and it's the 50s. But uh, it's kind of sad to see that unravel, but that's a talented Mr. Ripley. It's a very good film. Next up, I'm going to talk about One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which came out in 1975. 
So it's a little bit older. It's still good. It's on HBO Max if you want to see it. It's directed by Milos Foreman. So you have Randall Patrick McMurphy, played by Jack Nicholson. He gets transferred for evaluation from a prison farm to a mental institution. And he assumes it will be a less restrictive environment. But the nurse Ratchet, (laughs) shout out to that show Ratchet on Netflix with Sarah Paulson. Very good. Um, Nurse Ratchet is played by Louise Fletcher. Runs the psychiatric ward with an iron fist, keeping her patients cowed through abuse, medication, and sessions of electroconvulsive therapy. So the battle of wills between the rebellious McMurphy and the inflexible Ratched soon affects all the ward's patients. And this got 94% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards at the 76 Oscars and won five for Best Screenplay, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress, Best Actor, and Best Picture. And this film was shot in Salem, Oregon at the local state mental hospital. The other patients um, include anxious, stuttering 21-year-old Billy Bibbitt, Charles Cheswick, who was prone to childish tantrums, delusional and innocent Martini, the articulate, repressed homosexual Dale Harding, belligerent and profane Max Tabor, epileptic Jim Seffold, and Bruce Fredrickson, the former of whom gives his medicine to the latter, a uh, quiet but violent-minded Scanlon Chief Brompton, they call him Chief in the movie, who's a very tall Native American man who acts as a deaf mute. Though obviously in the film later, it's revealed that he can hear and speak. And there's a whole bunch of other pages with chronic conditions, right? And Ratchet sees McMurphy's lively, rebellious presence as a threat to her authority. So she confiscates the cigarettes and rations them, suspends their card playing privileges. They can't watch this baseball game. They really want to see the World Series. McMurphy finds himself in a battle of wheels against Ratchet. I mean, he steals a school bus, escapes with patients to go fishing on the coast, encourages fellow patients to discover their own abilities, find self-confidence. The true villain is really Nurse Ratchet. I mean, Randall's by no means perfect. He lands in there to avoid jail for statutory rape. Uh, But he ignites and livens up the other patients. And I feel like your heart goes out to the patients who suffer abuse and electrotherapy from orderlies. And the biggest character arc in this movie, I feel, is Randall's character because, I mean, he's not perfect by any ways. Uh, The reason that he's in there should speak for itself. But at the same time, he was not as evil as the nurse and, you know, his heart was in the right place. Um, so yeah, it's a really good movie. Kind of emotional. Last but not least for this week, I'm going to cover Man on Fire. What y'all know about Man on Fire? Y'all know- the whole time. I'm just, I'm telling y'all. We would enjoy that episode. It would be great. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Man on Fire, y'all. 2004, directed by Tony Scott. Available to rent on Amazon Prime. This film holds a 38 on Rotten Tomatoes. Y'all a bunch of haters. Mm-mm. Trash. Y'all did not trash this movie. What? 93% of Google users enjoyed this film. Google. Come through Google users because y'all hating. Seriously. I mm, I enjoyed Man on Fire. So I liked it. <laughs> I did. Let me tell you what's about. Um, in a Mexico City wrecked by a recent wave of kidnappings. Ex-CIA operative John Creasy, played by Denzel Washington, reluctantly accepts the job as a bodyguard for nine-year-old Lupita, played by Dakota Fanning, the daughter of a wealthy businessman, Samuel Ramos, played by Mark Anthony. And just as Creasy begins to develop a fondness for the young girl, bloodthirsty gunman, played by Jesus Ulcha, kidnaps her. Now Creasy must pick off a succession of corrupt cops and criminals to reach his ultimate object of vengeance. 
Denzel, of course, shines in this movie. In Dakota Fanning, she holds her own. I think it's interesting to see John, who is obsessed with where his eternal soul lies and weighs in terms of him being spared from eternal damnation. You get the feeling that he's killed so many since it was part of his job, you know, as an ex-CIA operative. Now the chickens are coming home to roost where they kidnap this poor girl and Dakota Fanning just rocks this role. And um, for once in his life, it's like he has relentless fear on top of fear on top of fear. And it's like, I think it's funny because you never want to watch a movie where they're playing the end or you feel like the end conclusion is, is coming up too soon. You can kind of gauge what it is, but it's like he doesn't know what his end is. He knows that it might be bleak. So he's just so doubtful and has so much fear about his soul and where he will end up. So I thought that was really powerful. So that's his really big arc there is this little girl being kidnapped who he was supposed to protect has kind of like wrecked his whole psyche to where he wants to redeem himself in a way through saving her, which I think is really cool. So this is a great film. Please check that out. Those are my picks for this week. Taj, you let me know what yours are. I know my students are sick of me because I'm always telling them about the hero's journey. Um, but we're going to walk through it today and go over that in, in relation to different character arcs. They're like, oh, no, not teacher Taj. I'm sorry. Um, but it's OK. We'll have fun. So with the three basic type of character arcs, um, it's very important to recognize characters as they're going through, of course, a change or transformation. Um, That is obviously when they are undergoing change of some some sort. Um, But in this one, they're doing a complete transformation, um, which definitely goes hand in hand with the hero's journey. Um, additionally, uh, you have the growth arc where they're going through a growing period. They undergo some type of growth, but it may not be a complete change or transformation. Um, and by the end of the story, they're the same person, but they've overcome something within themselves. And then that one is the fall arc where they, they fall. It's usually something that is more so the negative arc, which basically is the decline. These are typically like sometimes with fall arcs, the movies typically have like not a happy ending, um, something that ultimately dooms them. Um, so with that being said, I would love to talk about first up um, examining the Hunger Games, one of my favorite um, films, talking about the original, um, but you can apply it to any movie um, or any of the films within the series, I guess. Um, so specifically looking at Katniss um, as a protagonist of, of this film, you know, it's super, you know, strong female lead. You got, you know, this 16 year old who is basically, you know, she's far more mature than her age um, because she's the main provider in her family. Um, and so she takes, you know, care of her, her younger sister, Prim, and helps her mom out, um, of course. And so um, those responsibilities kind of coincide um, with her ultimately being summoned. <laughs> well, she volunteered. She volunteered as tribute, you guys, um, to be a part of the Hunger Games um, and, and, you know, uh, representing um, District 12. So she's not only fighting for herself, but for her community. The skills and qualities uh, that she copes with, um, you know, as she challenges living, you know, 
um, you know, being born into a poor family, um, being born into a community that is battling starvation. She, you know, gains the ability to hunt. She's really tough. She was a fighter at the end, just as she was at the beginning, but it's just in a different way. So I love the arc in terms of her growth and more of a, you know, it's more of a um, step up um, and not a, not necessarily like a, a whole 180 type of change. Um, but I know some people say that her character arc is a fail. Um, I've read some reviews that have said that. And I think that because that's why I wanted to set up the context of there's different types of arcs. So I feel like she definitely did did grow and, you know, she encounters, you know, different people along the way. Um, and that is also a part of her growth as well. Um, so I definitely feel like you know, she didn't turn into like this rampant, you know, killer, but everything that she did was out of necessity, just as how it was when she was, you know, at home and going through those motions, being the eldest daughter, what she had, what she did at home was out of necessity. So I feel like it's definitely the same, same themes and definitely a, a, a beautiful growth arc um, to me is one of my, one of my favorite films. Um, I would love to point out these different points in um, <laughs> the hero's journey. Um, given that first example, the second example will be Shrek, because we love Shrek. Um, the hero's journey is um, comprised of really, I mean, <clears throat> there's like so many points. I feel like I could just <laughs> go on and on in regards to like how how far you want to stretch it, how, how many points you want to say are a part of people's journeys, um, because sometimes it could just be ever going. But essentially, there, there's 12. Um, I work with 12. The Ordinary World, The Call to Adventure, Refusal of the Call, Meeting the Mentor. Then they cross the threshold into the special world where they encounter tests, allies, enemies, um, approach to the inmost cave. The ordeal, reward, seizing the sword, and then the road back where they're returning to the ordinary world, resurrection, and return with the elixir. We love Shrek. Shrek is fooling himself because he's like all mean and grumpy because he's an ogre. Ew, disgusting. Um, and he's so disconnected and lonely. And we feel for him because it's like, oh, sir, like... <laughs> you need to get it together all um on instagram always say like uh if uh taurus was an animated character it would be shrek gosh <laughs> like, uh, stop i'm an ogre Are you not an ogre though <laughs> wow i did not know y'all are wild no, y'all like behave. people wants to stay in their own house and eat food <laughs> Really? You know, I there's definitely some truth to that because I feel I feel like that's why we resonate with him a little bit because we know what it's like when people, you know, invade your space. We want just to have our own stuff the way that we want it. But as he goes through his his growth and his character arc, um, we see that he encounters, you know, he gets thrown into this adventure because, you know, Donkey comes up and it's like, bruh, what you doing? He throws him into an adventure. Um, he starts to trek on this path of, you know, going to go save the princess. Um, and he's never done anything like that in his life um, once he reveals to her that he's that he's an ogre. And then when she accepts him for who he really is, they drew um, back to merge their, you know, the special world with back to the ordinary world where he, you know, he's comfortable with himself and he, he has moved uh, beyond his fears um, after encountering, you know, the test, um, the dragon, 
um, becoming. So once Shrek, you know, goes through all those things, like I was saying, crashes the wedding um, and, and, you know, finally goes, he has built up that confidence to essentially go after um, what he, what he believes in. And, and, you know, he believes in his, his love for Fiona and um, essentially becomes really confident and, you know, it is truly you know, woven into his identity by the end and he's reborn. I feel like he's, um, I feel like his is more of a complete change of transformation um, because he definitely is not the same at all at the end as he was at the beginning. So definitely a good example of the hero's journey. Lastly, um, my favorites that I always compare and contrast, um, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. I know y'all are sick of me, but it's okay. It'll take um <laughs> Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse is a super dope um example because um specifically we have Miles Morales um in this film. He's in an ordinary world. He's going to a boarding school. He, you know, I mean he hates it that he had to transfer there from his public school, but he's in his ordinary world, you know, young guy in New York. Um and essentially, you know, he gets thrown on a path after, of course how every Spider-Man story goes, being bitten by a radioactive spider, which essentially calls him into adventure. Um, But he refuses the call. He, you know, things like, I can't be Spider-Man while still looking at the comics. Like, dude, you are Spider-Man. Like, no, I don't want to do this. He's confused. He's scared. Um, And essentially, um, he meets uh, with his mentor. Um, Each protagonist in each film has a mentor of some sorts. Um, or meets with somebody who helps them along their journey. And as he meets with the Peter Parker, um, he teaches him the ways. Um, and as they, they cross that threshold and they encounter, um, oh my gosh, too many enemies in this movie. Um, but a lot, of, um, a lot of characters who test them. And he also gains a lot of allies. Um, so I'm pretty sure y'all are familiar with all of the various characters. And they did a super dope job on this animation. Of course, always got to say that. Um, so as they venture through, you know, other dimensions appear and basically they help him defeat um, Kingpin, all of those characters from other dimensions. Um, and also, you know, Olivia Octavius irritating. She got on my nerves. Um, but yeah, he he ventures there. And eventually, as he comes back to the ordinary world, he now has gained um, this identity as Spider-Man and he. Um, is definitely a complete transformation because he was not a superhero. He was an ordinary kid (laughs) going to school in Brooklyn. So uh, definitely, definitely a drastic change. Um, And it was really dope to see his reconciliation with his, with his dad too. So um, love, love, love that movie. Love these character arcs, love seeing people grow and change and transform. And those are my picks. That's awesome. I love that. Like you got Shrek, you got Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And it's just like how they all can connect and things like that. That's really cool. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Please tune in next week for Love is an Action Word, which is our Valentine's Ooh. Day special. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Valentine's. I love it. Love it so much. It's going to be fun. Feel free to follow us on social media to stay updated on this podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Shea Butter Pop. On Instagram at Shea Butter Popcorn or follow us individually. You can follow me at Chelsea J Music on Twitter or Instagram. Or you can follow me at Tajana Okechuku on Instagram and at Tajana Tweets on Twitter. 
Let us know what you thought. Let us know. I'm telling y'all, singing episode is gonna happen. Keep on, keep these riffs going, right? And keep giving it a musical podcast episode one of these days while we're doing the musicals. That's what I'm right. All right. See y'all next week.